Yes, I'm Dutch. Dyslexia, audio transmission. Dis and Das, the podcast from the Dyslexia Association of Ireland. My name is Amy Smith and I am the Information and Advocacy Coordinator here at the DAI. We have Rosie here with us today, our CEO. Hi Amy, lovely to be here again. Yes, and then we have a man of many talents onto the podcast today, Don. So my first question to you is to describe yourself because when I was doing up the bio this morning, I had no idea what to describe you as. So will you let us know a little bit about yourself? Well, it's hard for me to describe myself as well, but anyway, uh, my name is Don Mullen, and I uh, was born in Derry, uh, but I now live in Dublin, and um, I am described as a, a writer, a media producer. I've done a number of books and films, but I uh, am currently the communications officer with the Society of African Missions, and I'm also a consultant to the United Nations Convention to Combat Desertification. I'm working on a very exciting project, uh, a great African initiative called Africa's Great Green Wall. Um, it's to help combat uh, the impact of global warming, uh, particularly on the Sahel region of Africa. So that's taking up a lot of my time at the moment and energy and enjoying it. I would imagine so, yeah. Now you can understand, listeners, why I had such a hard time trying to describe you in a few words, uh, Don. So, um, what we usually do here is we kind of uh, pick out some questions that we think would be um, good kind of uh, talking points to have. Um, and as always, we have our token non-dyslexic, which is Rosie, because we like to have one person on who's not dyslexic, so it's not just a dyslexic loving. Which is always the risk. Uh, so Rosie, that's okay. I'm used to being in the minority, so yeah. that's all right. Exactly. <laughs> At all times, surrounded by lovely dyslexics. Yeah. Uh, so Rosie, do you want to ask our first question? Today? I do indeed. So Don, I suppose. Look, obviously, one of the reasons you're here is that you have dyslexia. So could you tell us a little bit about, I suppose, maybe when you found out, maybe both officially and unofficially, uh, and a little bit about that uh, journey for you? Well, I was 38 when I first discovered that I'm dyslexic. Um, I had seen some programs on television, particularly the BBC had done some interesting stuff, and I could see patterns that kind of made sense to me. Mm -hmm. But I remember there was a, a friend of mine who was an author, and I said to him at one stage, I think I might be dyslexic, but he said, you couldn't be dyslexic because I had got through college and mm -hmm. so on, and, uh, and I was holding down a job. But what he didn't realize was that, you know, internally I was thinking that I had got through college by default but they hadn't found me out. Mm -hmm. And up until that point, um, I actually had harbored a real sense of being stupid because I was struggling with reading and writing and still do. Mm -hmm. But at least now I know that it's not because I lack a gray matter. Mm -hmm. uh, it's because of a condition called dyslexia, which I've actually come to realize is a gift mm -hmm. uh, and not a handicap in any way. Uh, but the important thing was the discovery that I am dyslexic. Uh, otherwise, I think I still would have been living with this terrible burden. Absolutely. And I think a lot of uh, people resonate with that. And I think actually the, the power of identification and the power of actually having a word to describe 
what it is as much as anything it's not about as we often say it's not about getting the label of dyslexia but actually it's getting rid of all those other false labels that maybe you had put on yourself or others have put on you in terms of their expectations of you yeah Mm -hmm. but it's a very cruel word when you think about it because it's very hard (laughs) to spell yes (laughs) absolutely when I started to work here I had to learn how to spell it from my own email address when I was giving it to people so I had to sit down and kind of actively learn how to spell it it's almost like an in-joke nearly that someone yeah. did just yeah. to be mean. Yeah. And it was clearly thought out by a non-dyslexic oh, person. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> clearly, yes. Um, uh. When we run Dyslexia and me with the young people, without fail, when we ask at the end, is there any questions? Every single time we've ever done it, one lovely little child put up their, puts up their hand and asks, why have they made it such a hard word to spell? Yeah. And we have to explain what the word means yeah. and why it's dyslexia. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but yeah, they're every, every time without fail. Mm. Um, do you think that that kind of um, almost imposter syndrome that you were kind of talking about there about your feelings kind of of being in college and thinking you got through it by default um, do you think you were able to kind of shed that a little bit once you found out you're dyslexic without a doubt without a doubt I mean when um, it, I was diagnosed um, not only did they do tests in terms of you know my dyslexia but they also did um, two intelligence tests mm-hmm. and I remember when I was sitting down to do the tests I said to the um, professor who was doing it I said I just want you to know there's a little 10 or 11 year old boy inside here who's terrified mm-hmm. because I came from the north and I went through the British system and one of the things was the 11 plus yeah. oh. which I think is one of the cruelest examinations that is put before any uh, young person um, particularly if you fail it, then it's like a mark um, that that really you carry with you for the rest of your life. Yeah. And I remember one day uh, I was walking and I could see two young girls coming from St. Mary's Secondary School and even the name Secondary School and, and coming in the opposite direction and there was a hedge hiding them both, right, was a young girl in a Thornhill College uniform. And it was very interesting to notice when they passed each other, the two young um, St. Mary's girls um, who would have failed their 11 plus, you know, they were bubbly and they were chatting along, but then when they saw the girl in the Thornhill uniform, Mm -hmm. suddenly they became embarrassed and they went silent, you know, and again, I could see it was this sense of inferiority that they had Mm -hmm. because this other girl would have passed. And like the uniform said, I passed and you failed, you know, mm-hmm. and and I really think it's cruel. And I remember we were put through, we were like teachers, for example, we talk about teachers, you know, I mean, I remember one brilliant teacher, Master Flood, and um, I remember songs that he taught us. And uh, But the one thing I remember is kindness. Mm-hmm. You know, he treated us all, you know, with immense kindness. But there was another teacher who was brought in for three weeks to help prepare us for the 11 plus and uh, we were told that the uh, the average uh, is it quotient is that the word is it mm-hmm. um, you know intelligence is 100 mm-hmm. it's measured by 100 mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. and I was consistently scoring 76 to maybe 80 which meant that I was educationally subnormal according to these tests you mm-hmm. know and he, one day uh, he read out a list of all the boys he was putting through to do the 11 plus and legally we were all entitled to mm-hmm. do it and I knew my mother had great belief in me mm-hmm. and uh, and she wanted me to sit the 11 plus 
and uh, he read out the list and my name wasn't on it. So he said, is there any boys' names, you know, who are not on the list who still want to do it? And of course, I put my hand up. And I remember he looked at me and he put his head down and I remember with caustic cynicism, but loud enough for me to hear and for the rest of the class to hear, he went, you've no chance. And the class all laughed. And that burned itself into me. And when I discovered that I'm dyslexic, and when they did the, the two intelligence tests, they told me that I was in the top 5%. So you can imagine that changed my mm -hmm. perception of myself, you know. I had this enormous rage towards this particular teacher. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because I had him for three weeks, but his influence had followed me for nearly three decades, you mm -hmm. know. And uh, I... Um, I went looking for ombuds. He had died six months beforehand. Uh, but I found his grave, and I went to his grave, you know, because I was so angry, and it took me a long time. Now I can go, actually, and talk to him now, you know. Yeah. And I've forgiven him, because, I mean, mm -hmm. I think he was as ignorant as anyone at that time, yeah. because they didn't know what it was. Mm -hmm. But it still doesn't excuse, like, what I think was emotional abuse of a child mm -hmm. at, yeah. at the time, you know. Yeah, and I think that there is, um, especially with adults maybe who are diagnosed a little bit later, through conversation with them, um, there can be that real just burning point in your life that you can even remember what the room smelled like when something said someone said something to you. And that was, it's almost worse that it was insignificant in their life, that they wouldn't even maybe yeah. remember you. Yeah. No, th that's very interesting. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, you're right. And it's interesting you say that, uh, Amy, because I actually went back to the school and I asked to go into the classroom on my own. And I remember standing at the back of the class, you know, and it was all processing mm -hmm. all of that, you know, all of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's definitely a huge piece around, like, letting go of that and kind of almost... Um, you know, all those people owed 11-year-old you an apology. Yes. But most of them aren't there to give it to you. So yeah. you kind of have to give it to yourself. And I think that there is a huge element around the emotion of dyslexia that we don't talk about. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And we just kind of expect people to get on with it. Because yeah, yeah. we're clever and we can articulate yeah. and there's no, you know. But, you know, it wasn't just me. I think this particular man had a reputation. And, and I heard a really sad story afterwards. You know, I went to... Uh, the funeral of one of my favorite teachers and I was given the great honor of carrying him to the grave as mm -hmm. well you know but I remember like his family were all involved in the teaching profession and there were um, some of his relations who were teaching in the primary school mm -hmm. that I'm referring to and I asked them about this particular teacher mm -hmm. and uh, they told me you know that he wasn't a bad person and he had a lot of challenges himself but they then told me a very sad story of the day he died and apparently there was one person went into a pub in Derry and called for silence and uh, when they got the silence he announced that this particular teacher had died and the pub broke out in applause I thought God so tragic you know mm -hmm. so obviously it hurt a lot of people yeah. along the way you yeah know? it's definitely and not a legacy you want to leave yeah no. yeah yeah you know mm -hmm. and i'm sure he wasn't like i mean mm -hmm. you know like we all have done things that we are ashamed of but we're not all bad either and he wasn't yeah. all bad mm -hmm. you yeah. know and that was important and i often go and visit his grave now when i'm in mm -hmm. in the city cemetery yeah. in Derry, you know because he's not far from my parents grave you know yeah
So I think that actually give us it gives us a really nice kind of segue into just kind of who are some people that have been a really big support to you, maybe even before you knew you were dyslexic, but just maybe in hindsight, um, who were a huge support to you or a big fan. I know you were talking about your mom a little bit earlier on and just like your yeah. cheerleaders. Yeah, without a doubt, um, I think for a dyslexic child to survive, they need an anchor person. Mm-hmm. And for me, that anchor person was my mother. Um, the very first day... I went to school, it turned out that it was um, a friend who was going to be my, a friend of my mother who was going to be my teacher. So she was able to talk to her and they knew that I was struggling. But I remember that teacher said to my mother that Don's a slow beginner, but when he takes off, he'll leave a lot of people behind. And so I think she always held on to that, you know. And so she was always a great source who believed in me, you know. And my father as well, I mean, in his own way. Um, you know, he wouldn't have been as big into education as my mother would have been, but uh, nonetheless, very, very supportive. But certainly uh, that. But then the one great thing about my parents was that in 1966, something very profound happened to me. And that was I watched my first live game of football on television. And we didn't have RT at the time, so it was all soccer, right? And it was the 1966 World Cup final between England and West Germany. And the goalkeeper was Gordon Banks. And I cannot explain it, but Gordon Banks became my absolute hero. And, you know, I, in later life, I have done many, many books. But the first book I did was a scrapbook on Gordon Banks. And... He died actually earlier this year and I had the great privilege of being asked by his family to give a eulogy. And I didn't say it at the time, but if you saw my scrapbook, which Archbishop Tutu and Pelly have described as what must be one of the greatest tributes any child anywhere in the world has created to a hero, you know. Mm-hmm. But it's a 500-page wallpaper book, you know, into which I lovingly placed everything about Gordon Banks. And, you know, what was very important is that my parents encouraged it. You know, I wasn't reading Shakespeare. I wasn't reading James Joyce, you know. This was all about, like, this man, Gordon Banks. Mm -hmm. And I loved him, too, because he came from a similar working-class background. He struggled in school, and he was a bricklayer. And I remember one time a careers guidance teacher telling me that since my English and maths results weren't great, that I should actually think becoming a laborer when I left work. I mean, could you imagine, you know, somebody like a careers guidance teacher, you know, I mean, in terms of trying to encourage you to, mm-hmm. to grow and expand and, 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 and broaden your horizons, you know. But here was a man who was a bricklayer, you know, and who was a laborer and uh, who went on to become the greatest goalkeeper in the world, you know. And that was the imagination that I needed, you know. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I discovered that I was a very good goalkeeper. I had good handling, good reflexes, um, good anticipation. And uh, and I became Don Mullen, the goalkeeper. And I dressed up as the England goalkeeper when I played for my street team in the Craigan Estate in Derry. <laughs> I mean, unbelievable. But Always no, a brave man. But no, but interestingly enough, like none, this was before the troubles mm-hmm. began, and no adult ever said to me, oh, you shouldn't be doing this mm. or that. I even had the three lions mm-hmm. in my political innocence you know yeah. when you look back in it mm-hmm. and uh, but you know one of the things 
I could have said, you know, at the uh, at the funeral of Gordon Banks, holding that scrapbook was to say, like, when I was a child, like, this was my Bible, this was my Quran, this was my Bhagavad Gita, you know, because the man in here gave me hope, yeah. you know. And he did give me hope, you know, mm -hmm. because he filled my imagination and he told me that I could be mm -hmm. better, mm -hmm. that I could grow, you know. Mm -hmm. And the one thing he taught me was impossible doesn't exist, you know. And that's why I love Einstein as well, you know, I mean, he was himself dyslexic, you know, because Albert Einstein had a famous saying, you know, that imagination is more important than knowledge. Because knowledge is limited to the point where we're at, mm -hmm. whereas imagination allows us to look beyond what we don't know, but know that we can get there. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think it's really cool when you speak about, like, you know, that you were kind of reading these things about Gordon Banks and you want to have him in stuff and you were, you know, collecting all this stuff. And um, when I go to libraries or I do parents' courses and things like that, I say to parents, like, there's absolutely no space to be snobbish about what your children are reading once they are reading. Exactly. So mm -hmm. if they like tractors, if they like football, if they like beauty magazines, if they will sit down and read something or cut something out and make a scrapbook, that's all you need. No yeah. one needs them reading anything in particular. They don't need to be reading, you know, highbrow stuff or what we consider highbrow. It's if they're reading something that interests them and they're asking you to get them a book, like that's the most important thing. Yes. And all of the other stuff will come afterwards. Mm -hmm. All of it will come afterwards, you know. And the main thing is just to give them encouragement and to say you're okay and you're going to make it. So I know you weren't diagnosed until later in life, Don, but um, could you tell us maybe about some positive experiences you had with teachers? So maybe those teachers who saw that potential in you that perhaps, unfortunately, some of the others who you mentioned didn't. Well, I actually consider it a blessing, looking back now, that I ended up in St. Joseph's Secondary School. It's now St. Joseph's Boys School, um, and they get rid of the secondary uh, word which I think for, for good reason mm -hmm. um, but at St. Joseph Secondary School as it was called when I went there we had wonderful teachers I look back now with an immense sense of gratitude and like I went to St. Joseph's just as the troubles were beginning as mm -hmm. well you know so we would have bombs going off outside shooting you know sometimes we would go to school having not slept through the night because there was maybe army raids and riots and gun battles and so on but these men and women like really loved us, you know, and I think a lot of them also realized that we had been, you know, given the raw end of the stick uh, when it uh, came to education. So they went out to really, really encourage us, you know, and I think back, I mean, a teacher that I, I went up to his funeral just uh, a few months ago, um, uh, a big gentle giant, big John Dunn, you know, and uh, I was asked to give a eulogy at his at his graveside and I told the story that when I was a scrawny little boy, it was probably only a, maybe 12 or 13, and he was a great English teacher but also he took us for um, physical education and he was teaching us how to throw the shot put. And I remember eventually the shot put landed in my hand and you know, following him, you know, I, I threw it and I always remember he went, wow, he said, 
who would believe that a skinny little man like that <laughs> could have so much power in him, you yeah. know? I mean, it was an amazing thing. Can you imagine that made me feel like a giant, you know? Yeah. And, and also that idea, who would believe that a skinny little man like that could have so much power within mm -hmm. him? Because that's what it's about. It's the fact that we have so many resources within us. Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of somebody, you know, blowing that ember and allowing the flame to take off, you know. Mm -hmm. So he was one. And, and again, like, he was our under-15 football manager as well. Uh, he brought me onto the team. I was the under-13 goalkeeper. But he brought me in also at 13 as the under 15 goalkeeper which, yeah, which was extraordinary but as well age, yes. and for that they brought up mm. to that and then there was you know the uh, the great Paul Duffy who was our uh, maths teacher and uh, he was also the music teacher and just these men believed in you and they encouraged you you know that was the important thing was just encouraging you and, and adults who when they looked at you you knew they liked you yeah. and they valued you yeah and they believed in you, and they wanted you to achieve the best, you know. So I look back, I mean, the big school, you know, was St. Columns College. I mean, you, that's contrast I told you in terms mm -hmm. of St. Mary's and Thornhill, mm -hmm. whereas it would have been St. Joseph's and, and, and St. Columns College. But if I had to do it all over again, and I had a choice of St. Columns or St. Joseph's, with the quality... And the caliber of the teachers we had at St. Joseph's, hands down, I would choose St. Joseph's, mm -hmm. without a doubt. That's a wonderful testament to the teachers and their, as you say, their kindness and just belief yes. that they gave in you and hopefully all the other pupils yeah, in the school yeah, at the yeah. time. And I mean, it was very interesting, mm -hmm. you know, to um, to go to the funeral of, of John Donne and just to see how many of the old pupils like turned up and like I was very moved to discover that uh, in his later years you know his health was failing and uh, he hadn't got a lot of of energy and a group of boys who were considered to be almost unteachable and he took them on mm -hmm. and he honored them and he loved them and he encouraged them so much that in later years they were the boys who came and said John can we take you out for a run and they would take him out once or twice a week mm -hmm. for a nice run maybe down to Bunkrana or somewhere in Donegal and they mm -hmm. would take him in for a meal and so mm -hmm. on you know and they did that for about five years I mean it's not beautiful to see how yeah, that yeah, kindness absolutely. can come back and, mm -hmm. come and full circle absolutely yeah, 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 when, yeah. when you invest in people I mm -hmm. think they remember you and they want to invest back absolutely I'm the only person that's allowed to ask this question because... I know what she's going to ask. I know. <laughs> so I think it's only a question one dyslexic person can ask another. But um, if you if we developed a magic pill that would rid you of your dyslexia in the morning, would you take it? No. Because I have come to realise that dyslexia is a gift. And that has been proven to me over and over and over again. I mean, for example... Um, I'm probably most famous for my book on Bloody Sunday and I was a witness to the events of Bloody Sunday as a 15 year old and I gave a statement and it was a very simple statement if you read the statement it's one paragraph it's of a boy who lacks confidence but trying to tell what he had seen 
but what was very important is that that statement was part of you know uh, testimony of one of the seminal events in modern Irish history yeah mm-hmm. right and it allowed me then to go back when I was reminded I'd made that statement to discover hundreds of other statements mm-hmm. that had been ignored by the first bloody Sunday inquiry and when I found my statement with about 500 other statements, you know, I had the idea of doing my first book, which became Eyewitness Bloody Sunday, yeah. which became uh, a, a bestseller, uh, was published in the United States. It also, uh, um, it, it, it also inspired uh, an award-winning movie called Bloody Sunday with the uh, famous director Paul Greengrass. But the most important thing was that the book working with the Bloody Sunday families and the Bloody Sunday Justice Campaign is credited as being a primary catalyst in forcing the new Bloody Sunday Inquiry, which became Mm -hmm. the longest-running and most expensive in British legal history. But when I began to read the testimonies, I began to see patterns that other people hadn't picked up. And one of the things was that, you know, one in ten of the eyewitnesses were saying that um, shots were coming from the Derry Walls. Yeah, Mm -hmm. And then I developed a very powerful hypothesis that three of the bloody Sunday dead may have actually been shot by a sniper on the walls rather than the paratroopers. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, that created its own momentum. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so that's part of the gift of dyslexia. Yeah. You see things in a different way. You know, you you kind of see the broader picture. Mm-hmm. and And often... You know, I think one of the great gifts that this lecture gives me is of an imagination. I have a very fertile imagination. And you just start to talk to me about anything and I start to see all sorts of possibilities, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, so, no, I, I'm very comfortable with my dyslexia. Sometimes I get frustrated with it. Yeah. And interestingly enough, I have a brother who has a, a speech impediment. And some days he will speak with great fluidity and other days... He really, really struggles with his impediment. Mm -hmm. And I find the same way as well with my dyslexia. There are times when it flows Mm -hmm. and other times like it's just a drudge. Yeah. I say some days when I'm doing something like, oh, I'm having a dyslexic day. So I'm going to go and organize the stuff for a teacher's course or go off and do something with my hands where I'm kind of doing less reading. Because I think there is, there's sometimes a fogginess kind of descends sometimes. And there's no point in trying to work through that. I think it's best to kind of distract yourself and then kind of regroup a bit. Yes. Um, but yeah, I do think there's kind of some days I'm definitely much more dyslexic than yeah, others. Yeah. But you know also, I mean, what I found was um, when I was, I think, maybe just turned 19 and I was unemployed for six months, but I decided that I was going to be busy during that six months. Mm-hmm. And there was two things I decided I would do. One was take part in a play. And I did. I joined the 71 players in Derry. And I got the part of a French hotel manager in a play called All for Mary. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Please tell me you grew a moustache. Uh, I did have a moustache. Yay! And you spilled me a very nice French accent. You know? French accents are very hard to do. I'm yeah, very yeah. impressed on. No. But, um, but the other one was I decided that and this is before the computer revolution, you know? So, I mean, I, I'm really happy about this, but I decided I would learn how to touch type. Mm-hmm. And I was the only guy in this class, and I remember going in, 
Strand Technical College in Derry and it was ASDF semicolon LPJ oh. ASDF I'm semicolon having flashbacks you know, <laughs> yeah. and doing that you know but it was one of the greatest skills I mm-hmm. ever learned particularly then when we moved on to computers and like yeah. I now touch type you know mm-hmm. yeah. I can nearly type as fast as mm-hmm. I can talk you know yeah. mm-hmm. and and I would really encourage like dyslexic children and adults you know learn how to touch type because yeah. you'll find that as you go on that it becomes a, a, a wonderful skill. And it's amazing. I had no idea I was going to discover I was dyslexic. I had no idea I was going to become, you know, a writer mm-hmm. and all of that, you know, mm-hmm. and that, you know, working on the computer was going to be important. But it was a great skill, mm-hmm. a great skill. You were ahead of your time. Yeah, it's definitely uh, a life skill, I think, absolutely. when yeah. kind of, I know that people worry that sometimes that they're focusing too much on typing and that, you know, but like I say to parents, like when is the next time you're going to hand write for three hours? Yeah. But you'll probably type for three hours yeah, in a day. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's very true. That's very true. Okay, so Don, so you've touched on some interesting things, but I, I'm, I'm guessing you're going to have some really good ideas for this. What do you think we can do differently in the education system or in society even more widely uh, to make this a more dyslexia friendly world well i think the key word is differently and the reason why i hone in that is that we're all different we're all unique and we all learn in different ways and i think one of the skills that the educational system needs to develop is new ways you know of allowing kids to learn and also Exactly what you found yourselves is that you know kids learn in different ways, mm-hmm. and uh, and there are great examples, uh, you know, of of schools and institutions who actually allow young people to to find their own way, you know, mm-hmm. and that uh, all learning is good, you know, um, and it's about giving us life skills. You know that allow us to move forward with confidence and and belief, um, and hopefully with good values as well. Because I mean, it's not all about making money and it's not all about becoming wealthy. I think there are far more important things in in life than than just that. You know, um, but but I think the most important thing is to recognize that we're all different, and that we learn in different ways and we learn at different paces. And the most important thing is not, is not to in in some respects mark children as failures because that's a huge burden to to yeah. put on children you know so i would get rid of examinations you know and i think that you know actually in terms of going back to my school for a second because i think this is relevant mm-hmm. when i was uh, when i started i was uh, in c there was a b c d e f g h so you can imagine how the guys in hitch felt you know and I was in C, and in third year, I was put back to D. But shortly after that, they decided that they would introduce a much more comprehensive approach to education. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they changed all of them. So it was mm-hmm. M-N-N-O-P-Q, right? That was how they, they, they designated the different classes. And they mixed all the classes up. So now I was in with guys who were in, like... 3A and mm-hmm. 3B mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and so on. And, and I realised, actually, I've been living under a burden of these people. It's almost a form of colonialism, you know. Because mm-hmm. I often talk about the impact of colonialism, 
you know, that you live with a master race who behaves towards you and treats you as a lesser human being. And this is repeated generation after generation over hundreds of years. And you internalize that. In some ways, education can do that as well, you know, that you internalize the fact that you're a failure, you know. Mm -hmm. And it's an untruth. It's a lie, mm -hmm. you know. And so that's why I think that, you know, the more comprehensive approach and the fact that, you know, the job of a teacher is not to fill us up as though we are empty vessels. It's to help us to discover what it is that makes us more fully human and through which we can become more fully alive as well. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, especially because kind of, you know, um, you've done so many different kind of unique and interesting things um, with your life and having the confidence to go out and do those things is so important. But I think, again, like you were speaking about the 11 plus and the almost a barrier that can build up on kids if they feel a certain way about themselves and then they don't put themselves out there to yeah. kind of be open to those things. Yes, and it's the lack. I mean, I see it in Africa. And it's one of the things I talk to African people about. And I think Irish people, because we've had a colonial history, we have a very special relationship yeah. with African people. But one of the things you can see, here are people like who have this incredible dexterity sorry, in relation to languages. Like, I mean, most African people with ease can speak four, five, six different languages, you yeah. know? And like the idea that they're unintelligent, you know? That's a lie that was imposed upon them, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah. But they have to liberate themselves from that, you know? Mm -hmm. And to realize, and I talked to them about that, you know, this is a lie. You're intelligent people. You know, you are, in a sense, the cradle of humanity because mm -hmm. yeah. according mm -hmm. to, like, all the archaeological kind of um, research, it's, we humanity yeah. emerged from Africa, mm -hmm. you know? So, so it's about encouragement mm -hmm. yeah. and believing. Mm -hmm. And, believing. and it's challenging that burden of, you know, reduced expectations that yes. people have by virtue of race or, you know, a learning difference or, or anything like exactly. that. And it's it's really interesting because actually there is a lot of research now that totally backs up what you're saying in terms of like, you know, with, with John Hattie and people like that, that actually one of the biggest predictors of how successful kids will be is actually how the high expectations of, of their teachers and those surrounding them. Exactly. Because we're not putting people into boxes yes. we're actually letting them act absolutely flourish yes. and go in whatever direction they want yes. and really achieve to the, yes. the pinnacle that they can yeah but rosie as woman you understand that as well oh, yes absolutely no, no, but, but seriously <laughs> yeah. i mean i often uh, say that you know the original sin against woman is the legend of original sin in the book of genesis mm. the idea yeah. that women were an tarnished from day one well, no, yes. exactly yeah. Yeah. From you, you know you look at the three yeah monotheistic religions like in terms of Judaism, Christianity and Islam who all go back to the book of Genesis as a primary text, you know? And you look at how women have been treated in all of those religions, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. And it goes back to, it was only a story, you know? Mm -hmm. It was only a story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the idea that, you know, I mean, and this is, I think, is part of the problem in society, certainly part of the major problem in many of the, of the churches and religions, you know? It's like we are a broken body functioning on one lung and half a brain, you know? Yeah. And like, you know, we, we need the male and the female together to become whole, you yeah. know? And, uh, and, you know, they talk about this being the age of Aquarius, you know, the age when women will find their, their, their voice, you know, and... and I think that's important. It's We're really very important. vocal, Dan, so we are flying Absolutely. the flag. No, well, it's important, but it may, but, uh, and it is, but it's still a challenge. Yeah, it's oh, still definitely, a huge yeah. Challenge, you yeah. Know? And the fact that women still, you know, are paid less than men, mm -hmm. and, 
you know, and the expectations yeah. are less, and there's a lot of burdens put on women, you know. And I, I look back as well. I mean, growing up, I grew up in a culture like which was misogynistic, you yeah. know, mm-hmm. and it was okay to talk and and uh, about women and to object, uh, objectify women. Yeah, it was okay to do this, you know, mm-hmm. and and it's only when you're challenged that you suddenly realize, hold on, this is wrong. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. a shock this to the system. Wrong, yeah, you know, and and we need to be challenged, you mm-hmm. know. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so it's a it's a much broader conversation. Yeah, you know? mm-hmm. yeah. Um, I have a question just around um because you've kind of done all these really interesting things and kind of maybe the road less travelled uh, in terms of your life and kind of the, the decisions you've made. Um, have you ever struggled with a little bit of like trepidation about whether or not you'd be able to do something like when you were thinking about doing that book and then kind of thinking to yourself about it yeah and and how did you get over that no i I mean that's a great great question i mean it's really really great question because uh, i still have that all the time yeah you know my immediate propensity you know is to doubt myself Mm -hmm. because that's ingrained from when i was a child you know yeah and i remember susan jeffers wrote a book you know feel the fear and do it anyway yeah and uh, I mean, again, I never read the book because of my dyslexia, but I dabbled in it a little bit. And I certainly bought it and I have it on the shelf, but I was able to read enough to understand mm-hmm. the basic premise, you know. And uh, and I find that, you know, um, been asked to give a eulogy at the funeral of Gordon Banks, for example, you yeah. know, mm-hmm. immediately I'm thinking, God, am I worthy enough? Can I do it, you yeah. know? And then, of course, mm-hmm. we can all do it, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so I think that, yeah, that's a natural, that's a natural inclination being human as well you know mm-hmm. but I learned enough from many of those teachers and adults that yes you do have the ability to do it and also people are generally very good yeah you know mm-hmm. and generally very supportive you know mm-hmm. and I've never really met a bad person in the world you know and um, you know I remember once I was having to travel from New York City up to Albany which is the state capital of New York and somebody said to me, why are you going to Albany? It's so boring. And I says, I don't go to places. I go to people. And I've never found people boring, you know. And I loved Albany and yeah, great memories wonder- of Albany. That's you know? a wonderful so, quote. Yeah. That? <laughs> That's a wonderful quote. Yeah, yeah, yeah you know. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I have this propensity to doubt myself. But I have to then say, no, I can do it. Yes, you can. Yes, we can. <laughs> You I'm going to videotape John doing oh, yeah. Yes You Can yeah. and then I'm just going to play it on my phone every yeah. time I'm a bit stressed yeah. um, I think it's lovely though that it's that kindness you have with yourself because I think yeah. it's you know it's okay I think all of us dyslexic or not we have those periods of self-doubt and actually to say you know it's okay but but yes. it's, it's almost like yeah, it's the feel the fear and you know that yeah, it's not yeah. it doesn't it doesn't end there. It's, yeah, you know, yeah, it's yeah. finding your way or finding those remembering those positive comments you had from certain teachers that get you to. to but it's take the colonial it the thing as well. Very often the doubts are imposed upon us. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. and so it's about liberating ourselves, mm-hmm. liberating ourselves. You know, mm-hmm. well, you're not certainly. I think you're going to motivate many people who are listening to this podcast today. Well, many people have motivated me so I just have a great sense of blessings and gratitude for them
This is a question that I like to ask sometimes um, and it's because I ask it to the young people that I work with all the time um, and it is that we do like a positives and a negatives board with the young people. So they tell me all the negative words that they have either thought about themselves or someone has said to them um, around dyslexia um, and then we do all the positives. So all the things that you can't quantify like how you're a kind person or you're a friendly person and all those lovely things that really as a parent you want your child to be. Um, but I think that every dyslexic person kind of has a word that still kind of gets their hackles up and um, that may have been said to them a lot as a child. So my one um, I've said before is uh, careless. So anytime I'd make a mistake, I was being careless um, and that used to annoy me because I'd be trying so hard. Um, so even sometimes if people say careless around me, I'm a bit like, oh, and I have to kind of straighten my to stop myself from overreacting. Um, but like, yeah, there's words like kind of stupid or thick mm. or lazy. Or, um, do you kind of have a word that still stings a little bit or? Yeah. Yeah. No chance. <laughs> no chance. Oh. Yeah. You know, so yeah. don't mm-hmm. ever tell me I can't do anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The best way to motivate me is to tell me I can't do it. <laughs> yeah. And I'll do it. Yeah. The, st- the stubbornness and resilience. Oh, that, but that, I mean, it's yeah. interesting because I remember that time uh, the the professor was taking me through the intelligence test and the, what she didn't tell me, the second one was so designed to so frustrate you that you would give up. And I remember at a certain point, maybe an hour later, she says, I can see why you've achieved because you're very determined, you know. <laughs> and I just kept working through it until the very end, you know, mm-hmm. until I got through it, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that I learned. And I think that's part of the gift of being dyslexic yeah. as well. It makes you very resilient, you know, and it makes you, like, maybe, I think, in a very positive way, stubborn. Yeah. You mm-hmm. know, and yeah. not to give up Determined, maybe. Determined yeah, and we'll, we'll say determined yeah, rather determined. than stubborn. Yes, yeah, yeah. put a positive spin. <laughs> yeah, well, I would say positively stubborn. <laughs> positively yeah. stubborn, yeah. absolutely. I'm definitely both, yeah. both determined and stubborn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's why we love you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I think you're. I know you're going to have loads of uh, of ones to come uh, or ideas from this one here. But could you tell us about some famous dys- dyslexics or people certainly that you've drawn inspiration from? Well, there are very very many, and a lot of them are in the the arts as well. But the two that stand out: one is a scientist, and the other is a sports person. I always remember the scene uh, on uh, Michael Parkinson's show when uh, Muhammad Ali jumped from his chair at one occasion, and he wrestled Parkinson to the ground. And the reason he did that was he thought that Michael Parkinson was going to embarrass him by asking him to read something, and because Muhammad Ali was severely dyslexic. And this was the way that Muhammad Ali kind of covered. But, you know, mm-hmm. you look at the brilliance of that man. It was sad in the end in terms of, mm-hmm. you know, how Parkinson's disease actually mm-hmm. got him, which is kind of ironic. But... Um, but when I was a kid, like he filled up my imagination as well, you know, and you loved him and you hated him because we yes. didn't understand his arrogance, you know. Now you look back and you thought this was a brilliant performer, you know. But, uh, you know, some of the, the sayings that he would have, you know, uh, what is it, sting like a bee and, and dance like a butterfly yeah. or whatever, you know. All he had a way with words, absolutely. Yeah. He, he was yeah. extraordinary, you know. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, just his, his belief in himself as well and... Uh, I also loved his integrity as well. You know, I mean, he was prepared to stand up and say, I am not going to fight against mm-hmm. brown people who have done nothing towards me and mm-hmm. refuse to to um, 
be drafted mm -hmm. to fight in the Vietnam War and went to prison and they stripped mm -hmm. him off his his world titles and he had to go back and fight them again and he re-won them again you know mm -hmm. and I mean that's but uh, the other is Albert Einstein you know I mean perhaps one of the most intelligent people ever born and um, I, there was a great humility I think about Albert Einstein and this is again education should teach us how little we know not how much we know so I find some of the most arrogant people I have ever met you know are academics uh, particularly in universities you know some of them are up their asses you know and trying to show off that they're more intelligent than the others like and they're writing papers and the papers are not about contributing to the greater knowledge of humanity it's about showing them off as being the most intelligent people in the university fake off you know yeah. and uh, you know education really I mean you you know I, I look at the universe and I love the stars and I always loved the stars you know since I was a kid and they really ignited my imagination as well and we're we live in a, a known universe of, what is it, 13.9 billion light years across. It's, we now know it's made up of billions of galaxies with billions and billions of stars, with trillions and trillions of planets. And it's more probable, mathematically it's more probable than improbable, that there is another mm -hmm. planet out there with other beings in it, you know. But at the moment, this is all we know. This is all we know. But no human being in the context of the cosmos you know can have the fullness of knowledge you know and the most intelligent people like people like gandhi people like albert einstein they were humble people mm -hmm. you know they were not arrogant people they were humble people and again what i love my favorite quote of all times is the quote of albert einstein which is imagination is more important than knowledge I can live with that. Can't we all? Yeah, I think that's a lovely way to finish up. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's been so, so interesting to speak to you. And I think um, a lot of people might be feeling the fear and doing it anyway. Thanks to listening to you today. I know I will. I'll be off. You'll have to wrangle me down off buildings now. I'll be yeah. So, <laughs> I'll be so enthused. Um, but thank you so much for coming in to speak to us. Um, and we will post some links to some of your work as well underneath uh, the podcast when we have it up on social media so thank you so much thank you and thanks for all your work for especially young people and adults struggling with dyslexia and for the hope that you give them because it's a gift it's not a